Hi, I'm John Popola, and you're listening to the Emergent Order Podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I have a really in-depth conversation with Greg Lukianoff. He's the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, or FIRE, and the co-author of an article that became a book called The Coddling of the American Mind. Greg is an expert on the First Amendment, a lawyer and a constitutional lawyer, and someone who has really deep institutional experience with what's happening with young people on college campuses as it pertains to free speech as well as mental health. And our conversation really dives into a transformation that he observed on on college campuses that has a really important implication for where we're headed as a society and some of the polarization and turmoil that we're already seeing out beyond the halls of uh, the ivory tower. So I'm excited to share this conversation with you, and I hope it helps you understand what's going on in the world and with young people as much as it has for me. So first question, Greg, is really simple. What is FIRE? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, FIRE stands for the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Uh, We celebrated our 20th anniversary last year in, in 2019. And we are the leading organization defending free speech, due process, and academic freedom on campus. Um, And and why why do those things need defending? Why did they, you know, especially 20 years ago? We're going to get to what's happening today, but. Well, you know, I come from a background where I uh, defending free speech was what I wanted my entire life. Um, it's why I went to law school. It's what I specialized in. I worked at, uh, in school. I took every class that I could on First Amendment. And then when I ran out, I did six credits on censorship during the Tudor dynasty as a, as a project that I designed. And I also worked at the ACLU of Northern California. Um, and I just all I knew is I wanted to do free speech work. But then um, in, when I was one year out of school, uh, Harvey Silverglate, one of the founders of FIRE, came and found me. Um, and at first I was like, I, I, don't, I didn't really necessarily want to specialize in higher education, um, but it sounded like there were some serious problems that I didn't know uh, that I knew a little bit about. And as soon as I got on, even back in 2001, I was absolutely shocked at how easy it was to get in trouble for what you say on a college campus, even back then. Yeah, I um I graduated from college in ninety uh, in ninety nine actually. So right uh-huh. as Fire was getting founded, I was graduating, and I remember I went to Penn State, and and I definitely remember it was a time where this notion of sort of multiculturalism mm-hmm. was the dominant, um, like sort of progressive idea that was kind of in the air. Mm-hmm. And I guess also poli- this notion of political correctness, you know, it's all gone into a totally another, it's gone, it's gone viral <laughs> uh, <laughs> since then. Um, but yeah, what's your, what's your uh, sort of memory and your sense of what the landscape was at that, at that time? Well, you know, being able to look at it from a little bit of distance from from reading about the stuff um, and and being in, you know on the front lines of it for not coming on on 19 years, um, I realized that when you graduated and when I went to school, um, which I graduated in '96, was either right at the tail end or right after the first sort of great peak of 
you know, what, what, what could be called political correctness. It's not a term I necessarily love because it's, it means such different things to liberals and conservatives. But if you ever wanted to find an Arab as PC, um, it would be the late 80s, early 90s on college campuses. And what do I mean by that? I mean, after decades of campuses um, going after this ideal of free speech on campus um, and really achieving that, both in the courts and in, in university policies uh, starting in, in the 1960s, there was an almost complete reversal um, really that really um, uh, kicked into high gear around 1997 that was saying, no, free speech is not the answer. The answer is uh, repressive tolerance, um, this old idea that essentially uh, free speech is actually part of the problem, and if we really want a progressive um, uh, society, we have to oppress uh, the bigots and the wrong-thinking people. And this went from being kind of a fringe idea to being an idea that led school after school to adopt um, new speech codes. And in, in the late 1980s, by the way, they were they were calling them speech codes. Uh, they weren't they, they were unapologetic about them being restrictions on freedom of speech. And this this period lasted from about 87 to, I'd say, about 1993. And one of the things that killed it was, well, one, the speech codes, when they were challenged in court, always lost. Um, it, it first started at Dovey, Michigan in 1989, and then at my alma mater, uh, my law school alma mater, in 1995. Ironically, I, when I only started there in 1997. Nobody breathed a word of the fact that we actually got defeated um, uh, in court um, uh, defending our speech code that someone in my law school had actually created. <laughs> uh, and so this, it, and there are some thinkers who actually wrote that this was kind of the end of it. The, this whole movement was over, and the speech codes got the burial they deserve. There's a guy Robert O'Neill who used to be considered like the the, the big expert on campus free speech, uh, popularized this idea, and it's completely wrong. Um, speech codes went on to fight another day, and who picked them up? campus administrators. And the era that I started working on campus, uh, the professors weren't as hot and heavy for speech codes. The students certainly weren't. The students, if anything, were pretty apathetic, um, which <laughs> sometimes you, you can see some benefit to that, depending on, you know, if they get passionate about censorship, that's probably uh, worse uh, than being apathetic. Um, and when I started, and for most of my career, the major thing that was going on on campuses, and one of the reasons why I think it didn't get the kind of media coverage it deserved, were administrators sort of keeping the speech codes alive, uh, clamping down on speech, sometimes politically incorrect speech, an awful lot of times speech that, you know, they found either inconvenient or they didn't like the particular, admit, the, the, the particular student or professor. And that was most of my career was battling things like free speech zones, where universities would pass policies that would tell students that they, oh, sure, you can have freedom of speech, but you have to limit it to this one 20 foot wide gazebo on campus. That's a real that's a real case, by the way. <laughs> yes, the we can you, you can you can do some cookouts and have boisterous conversations here in the gazebo in the north <laughs> quad otherwise right. be careful <laughs> yeah no exactly and that and it was it was really being carried on by the administrators and it was only starting around 2013 that we re i really saw a return to so, sort of anti-free speech student activism what was the driving motivation of these administrators at the time like why if the students aren't calling, clamoring for um, restrictions on what they can say, and mm -hmm. the professors aren't aren't actively uh, 
advocating for this for whatever reason, ideological or otherwise, mm -hmm. why would these sort of bureaucratic apparatchiks, if you will, I'm not being very charitable there, but um, <laughs> like this, the, these, these non-teacher, non-student people at schools, uh, yep. why are they driving this? Well, I wrote a book in 2012 called Unlearning Liberty, um, and in it, I tried to figure out what this era looked like and why we saw so many cases coming primarily from administrators. And the one I, the, the factor, and I, I described four factors. Uh, one that I put first, um, somewhat insultingly, was ignorance. Um, that uh, administrators oftentimes knew literally nothing about the First Amendment. They knew nothing about free speech. Um, they hadn't been taught some of the broader ideas of academic freedom. Um, so they just didn't know in some cases. And when you don't know you're supposed to protect free speech, a lot of our natural inclination is, you know, we got to shut that guy up or we got to kick that person off campus. Um, the second thing that happened, uh, the second part of it is political correctness. Um, and, and, and I am very clear here. Yes, I don't love the term, but it does describe something. And it's an overly sort of doctrinaire commitment to, um, uh, to basically left-leaning politics and enfor enforcing that. And administrators lean overwhelmingly to the left. So definitely there's some amount of politics or some amount of groupthink going on there. Um, and the natural tendency to, you know, silence the enemy. So there, some of it's political. Uh, there's also the massive bureaucratization of universities. Um, the number of, of people engaged in administration at universities has long since passed the number of people involved in education, as in the, uh, the number of administrators dwarfs the number of professors, and, and that trend has just kept on going. So really, what you're paying for when you go to universities is a massive increase in the administrative state of universities. And that leads to the problem of having, suddenly you have, you know, five officers who you can report to when things go bad on your dorm floor. And partially, frankly, because people want to justify their existence, it leads to uh, new and unforeseen problems. And lastly, the, the, the part that people uh, miss all the time is just the fact that um, universities are terrified of lawsuits and they're terrified of the Department of Education. And they believed for at least some time that if they didn't clamp down on speech that could be offensive, particularly to women or minorities, which if you construe that broadly is an awful lot of political speech, um, uh, that they had to because otherwise it'd be dinged by the Department of Education or lose in a lawsuit. So bureaucratization combined with fear of lawsuits was very powerful. Yeah, it's always, you know, at one level, I think people, Americans, appreciate how litigious we are as a society. But at another level, I don't think anyone really appreciates the way in which um, lawsuits are this extension of the law that they yeah. that when there's a change to title nine or, or some regulation it, that it's not like there's suddenly cops out there enforcing it it's the lawsuits that suddenly become possible as yep. a result of that regulatory or legal change and in this case it's probably a lot of regulatory changes that are possible that don't even involve anybody voting on anything yeah, um, and, and a lot of the mischief does come from the Department of Education. Now, to be fair, in 2003, we were done a tremendous favor by the Department of Education in that responding to universities saying yeah, um, the Department of Education made us do it, uh, referring to speech codes, um, the, the Department of Education issued a dear colleague letter to every school in the country saying, um, 
that if you pass a speech code, uh, you're not doing it in our name. And harassment only happens as a, um, a discriminatory pattern of behavior. It's not just anytime someone's offended. Uh, and that was very helpful in 2003. Unfortunately, around 2011, the Department of Education completely flipped its opinion on that. Is, um, you know, I don't think our conversation or your work or, or um, is about party politics, but uh, mm -hmm. given that you've brought up this concept of sort of this, um, the left-right uh, divide or le left-right way of thinking, you know, how do you, how do you interpret this? Because I, I uh, this, um, the way these, these dynamics play out across that political spectrum, because I certainly remember, um, you know, this is not on college campus, but just people like in right wing talk shows blasting college professors for having anti-American views or whatnot. Right. So there's certainly been a lot of pressure on the speech of professors coming right. from the from the sort of um, the right wing. Yep. No, absolutely. Yeah, the partisan politics thing is always a little bit challenging for fire because it definitely is a factor. You, you, you can't pretend that it's not, um, uh, or at least it's difficult to pretend that it's not. But fire itself is uniquely um, nonpartisan. We actually probably, if anything, have more left-leaning people on staff than we do right. But at the same time, we try to maintain a structure where there actually are Republicans working with Democrats, working with Green Party people, working with Libertarians. And we have that today. And in the current environment, that's very hard to maintain. Uh, and one thing I always try to say is like, yes, yeah, some of this does actually work out exactly like some of these um, conservative radio show hosts uh, think that it's it's political correctness run amok, you know, but that does happen. However, there's this big middle of cases where it's not particularly political at all. It's a student complaining about a parking garage pro project, for example, uh, the story that I opened up my book on learning liberty with. Um, that was a case where a president didn't like being criticized for a passion project of his, which was somewhat pathetically a parking garage. And he made up a story about feeling threatened by a collage a student had posted and getting kicked out of school. And that's the big middle of cases. Now, what's even more interesting, by the way, is that liberal professors do get in trouble a lot and fire is always on the front lines defending them. But weirdly, um, when you look at the media coverage of these cases, the ones that fit the political correctness run amok narrative, um, they get a lot of traction, not just in right-leaning media, but also in left-leaning media, which is which is which is a little bit of a surprise. Um, when it comes to uh, uh, liberals getting in trouble on campus, those get much less attention, um, and that's always frustrating to me because I used to write for the Huffington Post, trying to get you know my fellow people on the left side of the spectrum to care about these cases. Um, and it, you'd get comparatively critic, uh, cr uh, crickets. However, you do sometimes get get um, some attention from the people who live just to say, look, that happens to liberals too. So you get some traction there. But for this big middle of cases where students are getting in trouble because they ran afoul of the, you know, the, 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 the um, uh, press release department or the, the alumni association, or they just basically uh, were considered too troublesome, those get virtually no attention. It's um, it's always interesting. I remember watching the show Politically Incorrect with B Bill Maher mm -hmm. in the '90s, and I feel well, like the, his um, you know, he, he's changed over time. But one thing that hasn't changed is his in, his uh, allergy to political correctness, and so right. he's been a voice 
that when it comes to whether it's, uh, you know, today's overwrought wokeness or, uh, you know, he, he, he's often a, a kind of a, a standout voice, you know, on the political left, if you will, you know, standing up and saying, okay, this is, this is just crazy talk, or this has gone too far, or this is, you know, how, you know, can we take a joke? What's happening here? <laughs> and right. I think it's probably partly that he's a comic. Um, well, I'm glad you, you you mentioned the name of a documentary that we did. Um, we did a documentary called Can We Take a Joke back in 2015. And it was talking about how the rise of cancel culture and how the rise of the the resurgence of sort of political correctness on campus um, and in the larger culture, uh, how it threatens comedy. And we, and we started making this movie back in 2012. Uh, and, we, and it finally came out in 2015. And now it seems just like we were way, we were too far <laughs> ahead of the curve because things were just about to get a lot worse. Yeah, it's a, it's a great movie. And, uh, you know, Ted Balaker, who's the director, is a, f a friend of mine, and he and I have compared notes on several occasions. So, it was, yeah, it was a great project. Thanks. So, um, in, uh, at some point in 2012 or 13, um, and correct me with the exact date, mm. you, notice a change yes so Absolutely. tell me about what you're observing you know you're, you are you have this unique macro bird's eye view of what's happening on college campuses in terms of student behavior i would say in a, to be broad yeah what well, happened what's starting to happen um you know really not too long ago you know six seven years ago yeah that, that has you alarmed and 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 play out what what comes next yeah, no, it, and it was very sharp, and I'll, and I'll explain. Uh, as I said, uh, for most of my career, the main censors, uh, people pushing it, were um, administrators, and students were generally pretty good on free speech. They're definitely better than professors in a lot of cases. Um, and then we had a you know a fight with the Department of Education that we started to win around 2012, um, and then suddenly, just as it seemed like, oh, okay, we can. <laughs> Like things are going pretty well. We can kind of cruise for a bit. Um, we have the fall semester of 2013. So the the the, uh, the academic year 2013-2014. And in the fall semester, it's like someone flipped a switch. Suddenly, students were um, shouting down speakers. Um, and even though that had happened before, this time, uh, they're greeted with basically large amounts of public support um, for shouting down speakers. They were demanding disinvitations of speakers, um, sometimes even you know, mildly right of center, uh, center speakers at a, at a, a level we had never seen before. They were demanding um, new things like trigger warnings, which we'd never heard before, and uh, speech codes based on microaggressions, which was also a new term for us uh, back then. Um, all these ideas had existed on campus for some time, but they were marginal, frankly. Uh, and suddenly they it, it they just popped up um, on campus and the, and the fiercest advocates for it, for it were the new students. And for those of us who were, were on the front lines of this, it wasn't subtle. It wasn't as if kind of like, oh, we noticed this gradual erosion. It was like uh, students were good about this stuff. And the next thing you knew, they were demanding um, clamping down on speech, just like, you know, some of the right wing talk show hosts had been talking about in, in the in the late 80s and 90s. And the thing that really struck me about it was that they'd also somewhat changed the language they used to describe the justifications 
for the speech codes. Uh, whereas previously, it mostly been about discrimination, mostly about um, you know pe people being offensive or bigoted. Uh, and keep in mind, this is broadly construed. So a lot of speech that you wouldn't even understand why someone found it offensive could be get you in trouble on a college campus. Um, but they're also uh, justifying it through medicalized uh, language, saying not just that this person is offensive, but if this person comes and speaks on my campus, it's going to be, in a medical sense, mentally harmful <laughs> to, to students on our campus. It'll be traumatic. And this is what got, kind of perked my ears up, too, because I'd been thinking for a long time about how I felt like we were teaching students the, the habits of anxious and depressed people uh, on campus. Um, and I can tell that the story in greater, greater detail. Um, but it's ultimately what, what got me to talk to Jonathan Haidt about uh, doing an article about why I think this whole way of thinking about things could actually become a self-fulfilling prophecy. So to, to drill in to understand what you mean by um, sort of medicalized. So, um, you know, you talk about trigger warnings. Yep. Well, and I think, um, you know, that's where is that language coming from? Because I know it's related to, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder. So people with yes. PTSD, you know, uh, uh, Iraq war vets who when a door slams, they have a panic attack. That door slam is a trigger right. that surfaces a traumatic event and leads to anxiety. Right. right. So, so this notion of, well, I have to be given a trigger warning before we read Huck Finn. Right. It's uh, well, we'll talk about that. Talk about like go talk sure. about what's happening with this medicalization beyond even just the trigger warning concept. Yeah. And a lot of times it was talked about in terms of post-traumatic stress syndrome. Um, and it was interesting because a lot of times when people be advocating for these different codes using medicalized language, what they would begin by saying was, well, I don't have PTSD, but um, maybe someone does and they would need this. Um, and, and the context of trigger warnings, uh, that, that was probably some of the most interesting um, discussion around it. Even though trigger warnings, I, I actually think, are, are a little bit of a sideshow in this. When it comes to the medicalization, they were kind of front and center because um, it, it, it was sort of invoking um, people who are really suffering to justify um, uh, bans that were very political in nature. So, And this was at its most transparent at Oberlin College. Um, Oberlin College passed a, the administrators there, without consulting the faculty, passed a ban, um, uh, sorry, passed a trigger warning um, policy that included discouraging professors from teaching anything that related to class, sex, gender, race. It was this list of 20 characteristics that would make it impossible to teach uh, a lot of non-abstract subjects, anything about American history, anything about politics, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it was one of those things where you could see this sort of transparent co-opting of this medicalized idea to actually try to uh, take a very heavy-handed approach to um, the way people spoke on campus and what they're allowed to teach. Now, of course, because it was so heavy-handed, as soon as the faculty found out about this, they were like, no. And they uh, at Oberlin, they shut this down automatically. But this is one of the ways we got uh, became aware of how strong, and I, and I use this word intentionally, the faith in trigger warnings was. That, that, that essentially there was a, um, a, a faith that if uh, you use this, it would somehow make life better for people who are suffering on campus. Now, interestingly, uh, um, just like Haidt and I you know, 
predicted. The problem there is that when you're dealing with uh, a intervention that's designed for people who have PTSD, um, but you're using it for everybody, <laughs> what you can actually create is a sense of words being much more threatening than they actually are, which will actually increase levels of anxiety, uh, increase a sense of helplessness, and create an idea in students' heads uh, whereas once, you know, there was a sticks and stones will break my bones kind of idea that absolutely names can permanent words can permanently hurt you. They can they can injure you for the rest of your life in a way that you cannot recover from. And now there have been three or four experiments done um, involving trigger warnings. Uh, and all of them show that trigger warnings don't actually benefit people um, either with or without PTSD. Um, they show either no effect or a slight increasing of anxiety uh, uh, among, in particular, people who have PTSD. The most interesting finding that hasn't been replicated since the first study um, was uh, that, that showed that um, it actually also increased students' perception that uh, uh, words are harmful. Now, one of the reasons why I don't think um, that first study is actually replicated is in part because it's become so normal on campus now to think of words as potentially permanently damaging that you didn't see as much of an increase as you as you, every later year that you did on um, the experiment that, that if you come in already thinking words can you know permanently harm you um, you're not going to have as much change uh, in, involved in that so um, as a background before we go in deeper into your collaboration with uh, John Haidt, you know, when you talk about medical medicalization of psychological issues, you know, as you've shared that you have very personal experience with actual challenges, uh, you know, um, talk to me about that. What, sure. You know, and, and what, what insights does your experience kind of provided for this, um, this, this approach that was that was emerging, and and this was something that I decided to be very candid about, uh, both when I wrote the original article, and frankly, even more so when we published the book. Partially because the way we debate now, um, the, uh, on campus in particular, is um, that if you don't have a personal experience, if you can't actually argue that you have trauma, that you should shut up. Um, effectively. And so I knew that I would be impeached if I wasn't honest about where I was coming from. And this whole perspective, um, this, the, what led to the project Colleen the American Mind, really frankly comes from uh, about two years into my becoming, moving from being legal director of FIRE to being president. Um, you know, the first two years uh, being president was were, were quite difficult. I was living in Philadelphia, a city that I've just I just don't belong in. Um, <laughs> I, you know, had a bad, bad breakup, got very sick. You know, I had this really awful year. And most importantly, I was in the middle of the culture war all the time. Um, and it was exhausting, you know. Uh, and what was frustrating is, you know, you'd, you'd get one case and the conservatives would be mad at you and you get another case and the liberals would be mad at you. And the, the, the hypocrisy around it can get really, can really make you cynical. And with all of these factors combined, I, I was already someone who would, uh, who was increasingly getting bouts of depression that were becoming increasingly severe. Um, I'd had them when I was younger too, but I'd coped with them for, for many years pretty well. But then, you know, for several years in a row, just every year they got worse and worse and worse. Um, and with all of this other stuff combined, um, in the winter uh, of 20, uh, 2007, um, I had to check myself into a hospital as a danger to myself uh, because I was trying to kill myself. 
Um, I actually am pretty explicit about how I was planning to do it in the book. I was working, I was you know, trying to figure out the, the, the most foolproof way to do it. And that's when I just had this glimmer of, you know, I have to call, I have to, I, 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 this isn't right. And, you know, I, I really, for weeks after that, I was pretty sure I was never going to be okay again. Um, and, you know, I got, I got checked in, I got some medication to help with the symptoms. But the thing that really saved my life, and I say that quite literally, <laughs> is cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's, for those of you who don't know about CBT, there's a, um, there's a book by David Burns called Feeling Good, which is an international bestseller that everyone should read. It's this process of intermediating your um, depression and your anxiety by confronting the exaggerated thoughts you have in your head. That, and what I mean by this is kind of like you know the example I always give is let's say you're on a you're on a date you're really excited about it you really get the impression she doesn't like you all that much and by the end of it you're like oh my god I'm gonna die alone <laughs> <laughs> and we all think these oh, exaggerated yeah. things sometimes um, but at the same time we know that that's an exaggeration when you're depressed though it seems like the it seems like the gospel truth it seems like this is an objectively true statement. And all CBT is, and it's really quite profound, because in a way, it's sort of like applied stoicism, applied rational analysis, is that you write down what you thought. I think I'm, I thought, I, I think I'm going to die alone. And then you ask yourself, is this a cognitive distortion, which are common uh, exaggerations that your brain makes? So here, what you would say is, this was mind reading. I assume she had a terrible time. This was catastrophizing. I, you know, the, it's one bad date. What's the big deal? Um, this is binary thinking. Either it was a zero or a one. Um, it, it fits all sorts of cognitive distortions. You, you list them. And then you just re rewrite it in a, in a way that's a little more realistic. Um, and it's, and that's why it's not the power of positive thinking. It's actually just rational analysis. And by the time you get done with it, you get like something that sounds much more like I, I was excited for this date. It didn't go well. And I'm sad, you know, and even though that's, that's, you know, that's not the nicest thing in the world. It's by the time you're done with this process, generally you feel a lot better. And the trick is to spend a long time doing this several times a day for months and months, years and years, even if you need to. And I did this, and nine months after I was about to kill myself, I was probably the happiest I'd ever been, you know, uh, in my life. And yeah. meanwhile, I'm watching what's going on on campuses, and it seemed as if doing this at the same time as, as I'm learning not to catastrophize, not to overgeneralize, not to label. I'm watching campus administrators. As if they're saying, everybody, by the way, catastrophize, everybody overgeneralize, everybody label, everybody, uh, everybody engage in binary thinking and mind reading um, with all these kind of exaggerated incidences of, of, of professors and students getting in trouble for what is usually surprisingly tame speech. Um, and I thought to myself, well, thank goodness students aren't listening. Thank goodness students are rolling their eyes at this uh, because so far it doesn't seem like they're buying what the administrators are selling. And then suddenly in 2013, what do I see? Um, students making arguments that all involve catastrophizing, binary thinking, mind reading, overgeneralization, labeling, all of these things. And I was like, wow, this is, this is going to make you depressed if you're not already. This is going to make you anxious if you aren't already. And so I went to John Haidt, who was my new friend at this point, and, and pitched this kind of goofy idea to him. And to my uh, turn of delight, you know, someone I was, I was already a huge fan of his writing, John said, hey, let's write about it. Um, so in 2014, we started the process of writing what would eventually become the article Coddling of the American Mind. 
So um, to take one step back into your CBT uh, description of what you did, so you, so you so you have these thoughts. We all have them that are um, they're 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 un, they're not true, <laughs> right? <laughs> <They're> simultaneously <laughs> um, uh, self defeating and unhealthy and unhelpful. If you want to, you know, have a just be satisfied or be happier. And, and they're also just false, like, oh, I'm going to die alone because I had this bad date. Or, um, you know, that person hates me, even though I, I can't read what they're thinking in their head. And I, maybe they just were, maybe they found out their mom died and they're really upset. Yeah. Or maybe they just, maybe they just bit their tongue like I did two days ago. And they just have a grimace <laughs> on their face because they're like in pain every time they talk. Yeah. And, um, and, and so you, you, you do this analysis which i which is the cognitive part mm -hmm. right the sort of rat you like let's be rational let's look at what's true let's look at what what we actually have actual evidence for but then there's also the b the behavioral part so talk to me about the behavioral part of c of this in cbt yeah it, it, it means kind of two distinct things behavioral um also goes to the, the the sort of cognitive habits that you're in um that essentially that the automatic thoughts are to a degree you know kind of part of your behavior but it's also about rationally analyzing um decisions that arise from your impulses and getting yourself not to do them <laughs> in different cases or to do them um so the you know, for, for example, you know, there's this wonderful book by Alex Korb called Upward Spiral, um, and it's uh, probably the book that I recommend most to people when they're actually like deep in uh, depression. Uh, and it's all about very simple things you can do um, that help and that, that we know help. So, for example, getting around people, going around to walk and all these things are things that depression makes you not want to do. But when you can interrogate some of your depressed thoughts, um, it, it can help you actually do these oftentimes relatively modest or minimal behaviors that actually can help pull you out. So um, one example that I've heard from um, a clinical psychologist that I just uh, was interviewing um, about this subject said phobias are a great case for CBT that if I'm, I'm and I like I've, I've grown up I've always been afraid of spiders uh, and when I moved to Texas I encounter dramatically more frightening spiders than I ever did living in the Northeast and I have noticed that the more exposure I've had to spiders the less afraid of spiders I am um and that so that that sense of um sticks and stones that you know what doesn't kill me makes me stronger is true mm -hmm. yeah well the, the the idea that um one of the things that we 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 said in the original article is that avoidance is actually a symptom of the phobia, so the idea that the entire community is going to help you avoid what you're afraid of it can only make it bigger and more prominent in your mind. And actually what I think we're doing in some cases is let's say, you know, having a speaker on campus, let's say you're having Christina Haas Summers, who is a, a feminist herself, but she's critical of modern feminism. Um, it, you could turn that into a situation where you're, uh, you know, you're, you're gonna go and you're, you're gonna confront your fears and hear what she has to say, probably leave realizing that it wasn't as, uh, as crazy as you thought, or at least not as radical as you might, might have thought. Or you can do like what happened at Brown University, which made the New York Times right around the time that we were covering this. You can create a, a safe space, which was almost beyond parody. 
And what they did was during this debate that, and by the way, it was a debate that Christina Huff Summers was having with another feminist. It was sort of an, a, a, um, a, a, a feminist and a feminist critic debating. Um, and she, well, what they what they set up was a, a safe space that involved uh, puppies and Play-Doh and and uh, uh, soothing childish videos. And this this to me, like even though I'd been working on this on campus for for you know more than a decade at that point, I was like, this is almost beyond parody. This this is not helpful. This is making it, uh, students think that they actually have to retreat, hide, and get under under a blanket if they um, might be around someone who just has opinions you don't like. So you're 18 to 21 or 22 years old. You didn't enlist to go fight in a war overseas. <laughs> Instead, you came here where you can play with Play-Doh like you're four. <laughs> it's, it's, it is beyond parody. It's shocking. Who, th who, who thought that this made any sense? How could you think that – I mean to be a little um, – uh, to, to, to belie um, a sense of objectivity for a second here as a parent who wants my kid to be able to be a, an adult that can stand on his own two feet. The idea that a college student needs to go into a, a room with coloring books and Play-Doh because of a, a debate taking place is it's it's horrifying to me. <laughs> How was it not utterly horrifying to every adult that works at the university how can these people look themselves in the mirror yeah and and what i think it comes from and one of the reasons why i made uh you know i reached out to john height because i felt like we had this kind of similar role in the culture war is that we were two people who both um you know are, are, are left of center but are nonetheless are trying to get the two sides of the battle to um understand each other and he, uh, John wrote this wonderful book called The Righteous Mind that talked about how um, morality has, you know, uh, I think he said six different uh, pillars. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that uh, he said that it was increasingly happening on the left was that only one of those pillars has remained, and that is care for victims. Um, and that if you have sort of a unipolar morality, um, there's no check on it. So, Greg, you're seeing this transformation take place on college campuses, and you reach out to Jonathan Haidt. And, and actually, you know, why did you reach out to to Jonathan Haidt? What, what, what was it that what was it about him and his work that made you feel like he was the right guy for you to talk to about what you were observing? Well, I was already a fan of Jonathan's work, um, particularly, uh, of course, Righteous Mind, but actually more importantly, um, The Happiness Hypothesis, a book that he came out with, I think, in the uh, maybe 2006, um, that was taking uh, ancient ideas of happiness and, and, and wisdom tra traditions, comparing them, seeing how they compare to modern data. Um, and it's a, it's really an amazing book, and it start it, it talked a lot about cognitive behavioral therapy being this great um, you know proven way of dealing with anxiety and depression and overall happiness, and also meditation, something that I you know <laughs> struggle um, to keep doing, but definitely have spent many years as a as a daily meditator. Um, not not at all easy for me. Um, and I, saw him, <laughs> yeah, and I saw him on the Colbert Report, um, and I, I was listening to him. I'm like, oh, wow, this is a guy like me. This is a, a guy who's 
politically left of center, kind of in, um, in, in very kind of lefty circles, who, who nonetheless wants to increase and improve um, communication across the right-left um, culture war divide. And there's not that many of us, who, uh, at least at the time, back in 20, uh, 2012, when I think I saw him on, on, on Colbert, it was 2013, and uh, I luckily knew the guy who'd thrown Jonathan a book party um, earlier, uh, and so I called him because he threw a book party for me as well, uh, and said if he put me in touch with John, um, we got in touch, we had lunch, we really liked each other, and this was actually only the second time we've ever we'd ever hung out. Um, we t we were talking about like doing double dates with our wives w w when we were um, uh, still living in New York, but then I moved down <laughs> to DC. You know, we wanted to hang out more, but th then I, I came up from DC. We went and got Indian food, and I told him what this kind of like goofy idea that I had about cognitive behavioral therapy's relationship to free speech on campus. And much to my uh, delight, he said, hey, let's write an article about it. And I was like, great. Um, and that was in 2014. And I spent you know, um, as much time as I could piece together uh, with my pretty intensive day job at FIRE, putting together this you know, kind of novel argument about how all the same habits that are making students um, less tolerant of freedom of speech are ones that are likely to make them anxious and depressed as well. Uh, and we finished it in 2015. It came out in, in August of 2015. Um, it became the second most popular article um, uh, cover story in, in the history of the Atlantic up to that point, which is good for a publication that was you know, established in 1857. And of course, we solved the problem. <laughs> well, I'm glad that that worked out that way because I've noticed that my own uh, friends and family had this amazing 2015 transformation in their lives where suddenly they were quite a bit happier. And I, <laughs> and so I, I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. Yep. So what are you going to order for lunch this afternoon? Yeah, <laughs> but exactly. seriously. <laughs> and, 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 and that's the funny thing is we actually got, we thought we were going to get our heads chopped off because this, this article actually exploded in a way that we weren't really expecting. Um, and, uh, you know, but really like the first wave of response to it was, you know, of course you get like a couple, it was actually the first time it was a non-white person accusing me of having white privilege <laughs> prior to that it, it had always been like basically rich white dudes mostly um but suddenly you know it, it was thrust into this kind of deeper culture war argument but i was we were both pleasantly surprised by how positive the response was including people um there was a beautiful story by a woman whose brother had killed himself um and she read the story uh, she read our story it really resonated with her and it reminded her of a time when a uh professor in her class started talking about suicide without knowing about her trauma, without um, uh, talking about, you know, giving her a trigger warning and saying that it was the first time I'd felt normal in years. And it was so it was and so many people came forward talking about how um, they actually uh, are experiencing distress. And, and a lot of the ideology on campus is actually in some ways either disempowering or making it worse. Now, the reason why I joke about solving the problem is because the article was weirdly perfectly timed for the big explosion that happened on campuses a couple months later in 2015. Um, that's where you had about 100 campuses have uh, sort of Black Lives Matter style protests, all of which. I'd be all for if it wasn't for the fact that about 30% of them were demanding new speech codes or demanding that professors be fired for their speech or be demanding that, um, you know, relatively harmless things uh, otherwise 
um, were resulting in people at Claremont McKenna College from being from stepping down, for example, and of course the famous confrontation with Nicholas Christakis um, in, in the Yale courtyard. So everything exploded around that. Um, that was that was huge. I, I by the way, the, you, you know the video of, of Screaming Girl, as it became called. That was oh, actually from, that was from my cell phone because I was <laughs> I was there because Nicholas had invited me the previous spring when I actually, by the way, thought Yale was kind of up and coming, kind of like really doing well on speech issues, kind of like Princeton, believe it or not, actually does pretty well on these issues. Um, and uh, I, I get there and that's when the whole um, Halloween party thing blows up. Uh, and I actually videotaped that part to, to show that basically, you know, Nicholas showed superhuman restraint. And I also know how these, these things go on campus. If you have 20 students saying that this guy, you know, was insulting or acted inappropriately, and only one professor saying, no, I didn't. If you don't have proof that the professor acted well, that professor is going to lose their job. So we posted it the next day. This actually sets things off. You know, that, that actually reached people more than probably possibly anything else that I've done. Um, and we did it partially because also the, the Yale Daily News, which had tape recorded the whole thing, um, told uh, one of the reporters from it told me that that night that the Yale Daily News was going to just put the, 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 the moments that made Nicholas look the worst during the confrontation. And oh. then I'm like, OK, I'm going to have to uh, publish everything I have. And I literally put everything I, I, I had uh, related to it on the Internet. Um, because you, I, you couldn't have the record be uh, uh, correct, uh, be created by people who had sort of malicious intent towards someone who showed superhuman restraint. So that blows up like crazy. Um, well, and before we move on from there, just for for listeners who maybe didn't track this, uh, just uh, what exactly happened? Who is Nicholas, and, and and what happened, and why would there be? You know, let's just take take one quick step back and summarize. Oh yeah, the sequence of events that led up to that, because they are, and this is the only one of these. There's many examples. There's every yeah. state and, and 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 all the rest, but this one's so so prototypical in a way that it, yeah. it's like almost all you need to hear. And it was and it was literally happening all across the country, and it pretty much happened that semester, and they. Um, and it followed a very similar pattern at University of Massachusetts Amherst, Claremont McKenna, at Ithaca College, for example, and of course, um, University of Missouri at Mizzou. Um, and in this case, the inciting incident, so to speak, was that Erica Christakis, a absolutely brilliant um, professor of childhood development, um, sent uh, who was a, a, what was then called a master, at Silliman College, which is the, uh, um, I hesitate to say dorms because it is where they live, but the idea of the colleges um, at Yale is that even where you live is an educational institution. So they hired these two really high-powered intellectuals who are married to each other, Erica and Nicholas Christakis, to be masters of, of uh, Silliman, to have educational programming uh, on at least a weekly basis. Um, and, and Nicholas, by the way, is one of the most important thinkers, I think, in, in the country right now, if not the world. Um, he's absolutely genius. Um, he's also, by the way, very much um, probably the, the, the best friend minorities on that campus would have. He, he, he's a passionate advocate for social justice. Um, 
And a lot of his work is, uh, is, is involved in, in sort of network theory about how much more we can tell about people given, given their social networks. And so Erica Christakis, um, uh, when a group on campus um, sends to the entire campus sort of uh, warnings about what to wear on Halloween, saying like you, you shouldn't wear things that are um, offensive and they give, a, they give a relatively long list, which by the way, the context there is these have been sent out for since 2010, as best I could tell, these warnings probably long before that, to students on campus don't dress offensively, including one I think was at Syracuse or maybe it was Cornell in 2010, in which students said um, that uh, someone found wearing a <laughs> offensive costume might be asked to remove it. And I'm like, that's the uh, by, by campus police. And it's like, that's insane. Like, like and also creepy. So she sends something out saying, who are we to tell students um, what they should wear for Halloween? Like, it, it, one, isn't their ability to be transgressive? Two, aren't these adults? Don't they have autonomy? So this was an old-fashioned 1960s-style defense of expression and autonomy, which got turned into, and, and I think somewhat cynically, into the idea that Erica Christakis, and I've heard Yale professors say this almost verbatim, that, Yale, uh, that, that Erica Christakis were telling students to, to dress up in blackface which is absolutely not what she was saying. She was saying, let them suffer the consequences socially, but we're not their parents, and we have to remember that, which absolutely defends the autonomy of students. Um, student and what happened in, in the confrontation at Silliman is students had been chalking, you know, uh, kind of thinly veiled threats against Erica. They were trying to get her fired, um, and there was a confrontation in the middle of the dormitory that I just happened to be at to give a speech about free speech, which I'd been invited for back in the spring. So it was just lucky, weird timing. Um, and it, you, people can watch this confrontation on, online, and it was it got very heated, including um, Nicholas trying to engage in debate and discussion um, with, with the students being shouted at, told he's disgusting, being told that, you know, where to look, that he either has to look someone in the eye but can't look away from another person. And he handles it with incredible poise and incredible patience trying to explain um, his, his position. It's extremely impressive. Um, so so um, th some of the things that these they are not kids, actually. They are adults. They could be fighting off in Afghanistan, and instead they're right. studying uh, whatever they're studying at, at Yale, um, are saying things like, we're dying. Yeah. And we're fighting for our lives. Yep. Right? I don't think that's a misquote. There's uh, No. And, uh, students and, students broke, out, broke out in tears in front of um, uh, Nicholas because he wouldn't abjectly apologize uh, for everything. And he was – and uh, because they were you know, saying that this was all racist and you, you made this happen. And then, of course, the yelling was, you know, um, this was supposed to be a safe place. This was supposed to be a home, which, of course, actually was supposed to be both a home and an educational institution at the same time. That was the whole point of Silliman College. And this so and this is 2015, yeah. right? So this is before um, Donald Trump is president with his bombastic rhetoric about yeah. rapists from Mexico, and you know it's easy. There, there's a sense in which like racial tensions have all been ratcheted up under this uh, this president, but you know these are kids uh, talking about how they're under absolute threat of death mm -hmm. as Yale students during the presidency of Barack Obama mm -hmm. 
at the middle of what is still a pretty strong economy. At the most privileged school possibly in the world, or at least one of them. So you, uh, so just as, just as a matter of like laying out objective facts, mm-hmm. it's hard not to get kind of angry. Well, and here and here's so to, to how, like, how do I, how should I like how should I be charitable to these young people who uh, there are like a parody of privilege in the most extreme, even if they're coming from a place that's very difficult in terms of their background. They're still yeah. at a global perspective. They're as privileged as human beings in the history of the planet Earth can be. Yeah. Well, and that's, uh, I mean, and I think there's two answers to that, and they're almost opposite answers. One, which makes me very sympathetic to the students, was this was happening in the context of the somewhat semi regular um, uh, revelation of videos of cops shooting. Um, uh, black men for um, yes. and actually not 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 strictly black men as well. Um, there's some horrifying video of uh, situations with you know a, a white dude with his hands up, you know, begging not to be shot, being shot. Um, but Philander Castile, for example, Eric Garner choked to death over selling free cigarette in right. Lucy's as they're called. That, that's important to to and, be and resurfaced because these things. It's a that was very visceral at that point. And that was outrageous. That was all horrifying stuff. So I don't blame the students for being angry. However, in the goal of of saying, well, we understand the students' anger and their alienation and their rage, there is a tendency to just not say anything like, well, the students were in the wrong. And surely, as a free speech advocate, they have the right to demand that Nicholas Krasakis um, be, be fired and Erica Krasakis be fired. But also, as a defender of academic freedom and, and, and the function of campuses, it would be absolutely outrageous if if they were fired so there's a hesitance to actually say that say that the students in this case were 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 in the wrong um in this but i you know i I do actually believe every time and this happened like i said this was dozens of campuses where they were um at university of massachusetts amherst they demanded that a newspaper be shut down for publishing a pretty um run-of-the-mill article saying basically in defense of cops um basically saying most cops are good um there was another situation of course uh, at mizzou where we have the famous situation of the professor coming in saying i need some muscle over here to prevent a student journalist from covering a story which is crazy um you also had uh, of course the situation that we talk about in calling the american mind the book at claremont mckenna dean spellman um being forced out and put into a sort of maoist sort of struggle uh, session uh because she had um it kind of fumbled her language in a letter in which she was trying to kindly reach out to a, a, a a Hispanic student. And so this was happening all over the country at the same time, just in, in the fall of 2015. And it led to people also, by the way, thinking that our, our, our article had been written in response to, the, to, to those protests um, rather than before them, um, which led to, you know, more appearances on TV defending what we'd written. <laughs> so um, lay out. So the art, what is the argument? Because the, the book that follows um, uh, takes steps that what weren't in the article, if I remember yes. correctly. Oh, much. It's been, a, it's been a while since I've read uh, since I've read the article, and I think yeah. my memory of the article versus the book is probably a little blurry. Yeah, um, since I've read the book m- multiple times. Um, the article argues that there is a sudden and very dramatic shift on campus where students are demanding um, new restrictions on speech and other 
new policies that um, frame students as being highly psychologically fragile and easily damaged. And we looked at it not just through the lens of freedom of speech, but primarily uh, through the lens of cognitive behavioral therapy and what a good clinical psychologist would tell you if they were trying to actually help you not be depressed and anxious. And running it through the list of, uh, as I mentioned previously in the episode, cognitive distortions, we basically point out that a lot of this, you know, the, the idea that if someone isn't issued a trigger warning, that they'll be permanently damaged. Well, that's catastrophizing. That's overgeneralizing. That's uh, that's also mind reading and fortune telling. Um, and so we went through uh, all of all of these new trends, including microaggressions. And by the way, microaggressions, uh, if, if your readers don't know about it, they're uh, basically small insults that people largely unintentionally do on the basis of race and sex. I think microaggressions are things people absolutely should be aware of. But as soon as you make it a policy, you start having um, administrators literally passing policies that include um, saying things like America is a land of opportunity um, is a microaggression. That's one of the ones that they they, they, they listed, by the way. Um, and we explain how all of these things um, can lead to an, an increase in anxiety and depression, as well as a, a lower level of of tolerance for um, the academic function of schools. and But at the time, we didn't have great data telling us that there was a mental health crisis on campus. I was being told by everybody I knew on campus that, that the, um, uh, the situation had gotten really dire very rapidly right around the same time as students came in demanding trigger warnings and, and uh, disinvitations. Um, but we've uh, uh, in, in the year in, in, when we were, had decided we weren't going to write the, an article, I was like, this is good. We're, we, we, we said what we want to say. The, the, the article got to tons of people. Um, the data started to come out and it turned out that this, you know, admittedly kind of we thought there might be a modest increase in anxiety and depression among younger people. And instead, it was huge. Uh, and, uh, and not just self-reports of uh, depression um, uh, and other anxiety and other mood disorders, which did skyrocket, not just um, university counseling centers saying that they're completely overwhelmed, but also an a, a identical, unfortunately, rise in the rate of admissions for self-harm. Um, from young people, from college-age people and, and younger, um, and worst of all, in suicide. Uh, that And that's one of the ways that when people say, oh, maybe this is just students are more comfortable talking about their depression, eh, uh, the clearly it's having a much greater impact if you're seeing uh, when it comes to young women, and if you take from 2008 to 2016 or 17, I think, um, the increase was actually double the rate of suicide, but overall about like a 70, 80% rise. And so um, it's interesting because, as you said, you have this article that focuses on this campus behavior and, and is focused on this notion of freedom of expression and, mm -hmm. and, and, and the ways in which the, the expressions that are – the underlying motivation behind this, these attacks on speech as being violence and needing to be trigger uh, – have trigger warnings and have – uh, speakers and have not just speech, not just, but, but obviously wearing stupid costumes that might be offensive is, has all been ramped up to acts of, of physical aggression. Mm -hmm. um, there's this deep, you, you only, you hint at this deeper, this deeper force that's that that whose implications I think are as much broader than just freedom of expression. Yes, and that really takes us to uh, the book "Coddling an American Mind," mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and um and the background that you and 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 John Height um go into there and and so sort of lay out sort of summarize the bigger picture um that you sort of un- uncover in that book that's sort of feeding this behavior yes um so it took about a year before height and i decided to write the book because things were as we said they seemed to be getting far worse and certainly with the election of donald trump everything just got much more intense that's when you first start having you know the milo riots the uh, uh claremont mckenna again in this case it was heather um heather mcdonald um you have the assault on Allison Sanger at Middlebury College, um, a liberal professor who was physically defending Charles Murray ended up getting very badly injured by um, by protesters. Um, so we, we wanted to the, the the motivating question of the book became what was so different about the class that started hitting campuses around 2012, 2013. Um, and in the process of researching that, it, we just discovered so many interesting things and not the least of which starting um one of the things we found out really early on was that it was partially a very pronounced and very dramatic generational shift a lot of times when people talk about you know some of the things that people tend to make fun of um characteristics you know when people say a term i don't like very much but call students snowflakes they oftentimes think they're talking about millennials um and we we have to explain no millennials were fine <laughs> they, they were they were actually very good on free speech for my, for, for for my whole career um but it was a gen- what's now called generation z which is roughly people born in 1996 or after. And we started looking at other things that lined up to to make this generation distinct. Um, And it was dramatic. Uh, The attitudes about safety, you know, is probably one of the most important to our our research. Uh, An almost obsessive commitment to uh, not just physical safety, but um, uh, a redefinition of safety to also include um, kind of like an unperturbed mental state that essentially you could say if something vaguely bothers you on campus, in some cases they'll say you feel unsafe, whereas we once would simply say uncomfortable. So that's definitely part of it. And to be clear, here we're talking mostly about problems that um, exist in, in uh, not, not just the upper half of social economic status, but you know probably the top 5% for a lot of even 1% for, for some of these more elite colleges, unfortunately, are very skewed towards um, very privileged and very wealthy uh, wealthy people. Um, whereas we're very all clear in the book that when you talk about the the, the problems currently faced by people in the lower half and quartile, um, in some ways they're far more serious, far more troubling, far worse, but both have um, interesting uh, and troubling problems that they, they, they bring with them. And so we, we tried to figure out what was so different. And we came up with a uh, explanatory thread that included six parts. Um, and the first two deal with social media. Um, and the first two, we think that social, the, the reason why this was so fast was because it perfectly lines up with the first students who would have had smartphones and social media in their pockets. Um, so like in 2004, nobody had that by 2000, you know, 2008, 
uh, students had that, um, and, and young people actually had that. And you start hearing the stories of people, you know, girls going to bed with their phones, and same thing with boys, and looking at them, uh, looking at them constantly. And we think that helps explain two things: um, one, uh, the rise in anxiety and depression uh, that particularly hit girls harder than it hit boys. Uh, we also think that it contributed to polarization, which was already happening anyway. But um, uh, all of these processes were sped up by social media. I can go on the, uh, and explain the next four if you want me to, but did you want me to slow down? No, I think, that, yeah, please do. Please like walk us through the, uh, those, those, those six sort of causal factors that you've identified. Yeah. And then, so, and so the next two relate to parenting. And this was actually a, um, these were some of my favorite uh, uh, chapters to research uh, because it was one where we came in very aware of the fact that neither of us, even though we have kids, are parenting experts. So we had to interview a lot of experts um, and we had to do a lot of independent research and figure out what's going on. And so we came to the conclusion that two things that are different about um, the generation that tends to go to these more elite colleges is that um, the that paranoid parenting and helicopter parenting um, had greatly increased. Um, and there's ways you can measure that, including um, uh, the, the time spent outside, uh, for, for example. Um, and we tried to get to the bottom of why when physically this is possibly the safest time in history to be a kid. Uh, murder rates down. Kidnapping has always been a lot lower than people thought. Um, the you know even death from accidents are are way down from even just when we were kids. Um, you know murder rates wildly down from wh when we were kids. And by almost every definition, we had it more dangerous, but parents seemed to be more paranoid. Now at least part of that. Um, is in response to the higher stakes of getting in, at least the perceived higher stakes of getting into one of these elite colleges. Um, in a more stratified society with, with, a, with a much bigger payoff if you get to the top, there is a realistic, unfortunately, sense that if you can get your kid into a Harvard, they're going to be set for life. But if you can't, um, they might drift down into the um, alienated America middle class, which is not you know, I'm not doing so hot right now. So there is a rational component to the to, to the paranoia as to that relates to getting into college, or at um, least what seems rational. I think yeah. there's a we can yeah. talk about it a little more, but I mean, yeah, keep but keep going. <laughs> no, no, totally fair. Um, the next one, which was the biggest surprise of the book that we ended up um, writing so much about it, we devo devoted its own chapter to it, was the decline of free play. Now that sounds like a minor detail uh, when you first start when you first hear it, but one of the problems that we're seeing is that particularly for the kind of students who are going to these elite colleges, they are increasingly scheduled from you know six a.m. but you know but by tiger mothers, um, or or at least some uh, you know some lighter version of that. But there is an instinct to schedule your kids from six o'clock uh, to in the morning to when they go to bed to make sure that they're productive, keeping ahead, so that you have the cult of the head start as it's called. Um, and this is deserved its own chapter because the more we looked into it, the more we realized that free and unstructured time, free and unsupervised time is absolutely essential to childhood development. Um, that play is how we actually figure out what the what we're going to do in the adult world. It's it's the whole idea of intersubjective reality, which is more or less pretending that a bank really exists um, and everybody agrees to it. That's how we create institutions. And as kids, we're just actually pretending at you know adult life to a degree, but also you know navigating interpersonal conflict, uh, figuring out how to delegate 
developing a sense of autonomy. And if instead you have kids that always have intermediated relationships and intermediated conflicts, um, you stop all that. You stop all the creativity that comes out of, uh, comes out of free play. And worst of all, you take away from young people their locus of internal their internal locus of control uh, an internal locus of control is very much what it sounds like it's the idea that you have some power over your own life and this is something that's very well established in psychological research that if you take away someone's locus of control if you give them an external locus of control that essentially mom and dad are in charge of things or teacher is in charge of things or you know they did experiments in in, um, uh, in old people's homes where they said um, where they gave uh, some of the some of the people uh, living there, the elderly people living there, you know, some autonomy in making decisions about um, what movies to watch. And the ones where they took all the autonomy away, everyone gets depressed. The ones where they gave autonomy, it actually in increased uh, people's spirit and mood. So we've, by creating this overscheduled childhood, we've created a situation of intense anxiety about the future, um, a lack of sense of being able to handle yourself in the real world. And essentially, people pr constantly whispering in your ear that you're not really ready to handle this on your own. And that's why I wanted to call the book, by the way, not coddling the American mind. I wanted to call it disempowered because when students were showing up, and, and this is what's hard, this is where you really can't have compassion. Julie Lithgott Haynes uh, was a friend and we interview her in the book, wrote an absolutely fabulous book called uh, How to Raise an Adult. Yeah, it's a fantastic and book. It's absolutely great. And she used to be, and I knew her back when I was at Stanford, and she became the dean of freshmen. And she watched this kind of, at first, relatively slow trickle of oftentimes absolutely brilliant students um, who you know could tell you anything about physics that you might ask, but asked to make simple decisions about anything related to their lives, immediately we get on the phone to their parents. And she saw this as this incredibly sort of this vote of no confidence in your own autonomy and how damaging and infantilizing and depressing that could actually be for some of these students who know nothing other than to be aimed at a Stanford or a Princeton or a Harvard. Um, and so we, we do actually think that lack of free time and free play is an absolutely crucial element that is very underappreciated. And the and, final, the, and the, and oh, just to linger to... on that for just a sec for, um, for listeners, we interviewed, um, I interviewed Peter Gray. Oh yeah. He's great. And, and went deep into his book, uh, free to learn, which I know was, a um, one of the, he's not the so single expert on this, but he's certainly one of the most vociferous advocates. And we, so for, for people that want to dive deeper into what Greg's talking about here is as far as just how important free play is that interview, you know, is, is, is fantastic. And also, you know, I think it's important that people understand that, you know, when we say free play, if I can assume that you're kind of using it in the way Peter does, uh, this is activity that your kid chooses to do. Um, you know, it's freely chosen and it's, um, and uh, it's, it's something that they, they want to do for its own sake. It's, it's so the idea that, and it's, and it's freely developed, it's freely controlled. So going outside with your buddies or your girlfriends and just running around and trying to figure out and coming up with a game, playing tag, making up the rules, that's free play. Um, little soccer for your, for your five-year-old son or daughter is not free play. That is a adult uh, directed enterprise. Little League, not free play. <laughs> um, 
Because I think sometimes we think, oh, our kids get all this playtime and, oh, yeah, they get they get they get plenty of outdoor time. They go to soccer three days a week. It's like that's not what we're talking about. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. The the highly structured time that doesn't allow people to develop a sense of autonomy. Um, It doesn't allow them to navigate. Yeah. um, Interpersonal self-directed and self-chosen. Absolutely. No, I'm a huge fan. He's one of the experts we, we um, interviewed. We talked to actually in, in a professional capacity, we talked to Eric Christakis, who wrote an abs- a, a wonderful book called The Importance of Being Little, which I recommend to everybody. We talked to Julia Lothcott Haynes and, of course, the great Lenore Skenazy. So, yeah, so you're about to move on to the, the, uh, the, the, the final two. Yeah, the final two. Yeah, well, the um, the final two are relate to uh, why it's so much more intense on campuses, and the <laughs> probably the most boring factor, um, but at the same time, to me, the least appreciated, at least when it comes to campuses, is something I've already mentioned, which is hyper bureaucratization, hyper corporatization of universities. Um, the, the fact that they have really ramped up administrative staff leads to all sorts of really bizarre problems that can't be understood really in any other way other than universities are trying to not get sued, trying to comply with regulation. Um, And also sometimes they have uh, very ideological administrators in highly staffed positions that feel like their job is to police what students say. And it really, and and here's the the unfortunate thing that I'm realizing um, it might be even worse than I thought, is that sometimes when you see these blowups on campus, um, it's worth looking into whether or not students were actually encouraged by people in the administration to engage in, in, in say, let's say, a disruption or to advocate for a professor being fired. Because that used to happen when, when there were students being involved. A lot of times there were administrators egging them on. And we've seen this at Oberlin. Um, you know, we've seen this at uh, St. Lawrence University, where suddenly, coincidentally, when a conservative professor um, writes a piece in the New York Times, his name is Sam Abrams, writes a piece in the New York Times saying that administrators lean more to the left than even the faculty. Um, and my opinion, uncontroversial, you know, uh, data. <laughs> statement uh, of fact. <laughs> statement of fact. Um, suddenly the students, for some reason, start going after him hardcore, demanding that he be fired. And it's like, no, the students didn't care about this. They're being told that they have to go after this monster because he's actually highly critical of the administrative state at universities. Um, so that's like the, one of the secret engine things. And, that's, and believe it or not, the longest chapter of the book is about examples of how hyper-bureaucratization and, um, makes things worse, both in, in ideological and non-ideological ways. But the final piece of it is, is the one that um, other critics, particularly conservative critics, would have liked us to put first. But um, we put last uh, because we do actually think that it's sort of like the, um, like the cherry on top uh, of all these other effects is our new ideas of social justice. Um, And that includes a focus on what we call uh, in the book um, uh, common uh, enemy identity politics versus common humanity uh, and identity politics. Common enemy, uh, common, uh, uh, common humanity identity politics is in the tradition of the really successful civil rights movements, including for women, for, my, uh, uh, for African Americans, and, and for gay rights. 
And one of the things that's, you know, one of the reasons why I'm a constitutional lawyer and why, I, you know, I, I love the Bill of Rights so much is because it is, it is one of the most idealistic documents ever written. And uh, compellingly, people like Martin Luther King were able to say, listen, we're not asking for special rights here. We're asking to be afforded the same humanity, the same beautiful ideals, uh, the same rights that were promised to us by uh, by our founders, uh, just like you. And, and that has real compelling power. The, the idea that we're going to expand the circle of what it means to be American um, rather than fracture it. And those movements have been extremely successful. Uh, for example, in the 1970s, the movement to get um, uh, gay people to come out of the closet so that it changes from like this, uh, you know, idea, this theoretical idea of um, gay people that you might have heard of to, wow, that's my brother. That's my uncle. That's my uh, that's my daughter. Um, and it had a powerfully transformative effect, partially because it was saying it wasn't saying that we're different and special. It was saying that we're one of you. We're just we're part of your communities. We're your friends. And that had transformative power. But unfortunately, on campus, I think um, partially because maybe activists thought they weren't getting far enough on the common humanity approach, increasingly adopted what we call the common enemy approach, which is very closely related to the theory of intersectionality, um, which we talk about in the book. Intersectionality basically saying very simply means that uh, rather than being uh, black or a woman, for example, um, the problems faced by black women are actually idiosyncratic. They're actually unique. They're not, they're not just the problems faced by uh, black people or just the problems faced by women. And this is all valid, that essentially all of us have intersecting identities. But unfortunately on campus, as often happens, some of these ideas that actually have some merit and have some uh, you know, good explanatory value get used instead as rhetorical tactics. Um, they get used as ways to, say, to sort of um, dismiss somebody from, for their privilege because they, they can't talk on these following topics. Um, and that, of course, is very divisive because if you, if you follow all the rules that some of the people in, 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 um, on campus have set up for who's allowed to speak about what, it creates what I call the perfect rhetorical fortress <laughs> that, 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 that essentially um, you can be dismissed based on your identity um, no matter what. They can figure out a way. They have plenty of extra little fortifications that they can use. And you can have a 45-minute long argument about something really serious in society without ever once getting to the substance of what you were trying to argue about. And I think the thing, and it's funny because there's so many, there's a lot of different thinkers and threads uh, that have recognized this this mentality as a problem this sort of skin deep tribalism yep. that's that that is unleashed by this um if perhaps it's a perversion of the crenshaw work on this uh, on intersectionality um or the observations or whatever you want to call it but this idea that well um you can't actually hold valid beliefs about other experiences unless you've experienced them yourselves mm -hmm. and so you need to shut up so right. if you're not black or gay or a woman or uh, uh, um, uh, you know a native um, person you know an aboriginal or native american or whatever indigenous population well then you can't speak about their experience and and, and in fact trying to is 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 so offensive that it, it you need to be st actively physically stopped because 
you're committing violence against them when you hold some kind some kind of opinion and i think the thing that's so shocking about this is that what it basically says is there's no such thing as empathy and that you can't have solidarity with anybody outside of your sort of the 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 really in some ways the least important differences because we know that there's basically no meaningful genetic differences really between races or or, or skin colors and so you're left with this kind of splintering tribe where you're not able to talk to anybody else so okay well i'm you're you're darker than me so i can't understand you and i if i i'm at such risk of hurting you if i try to understand you that i i I, sh- I guess i shouldn't yeah well it also includes this kind of catch-22 where um if you say something offensive and uh someone who's less privileged than you um is offended that it's not their job to explain to you why it was offensive. Um, but at the same time, if what's, what's known as an ally, which is also telling because it, you know, it gives you the idea that we're actually at war, like a, what would be called like a white ally could explain it to the person about why it was offensive. But they're not actually allowed to do that either because that would be speaking on behalf and speaking for um, experiences you can't possibly understand. Um, and it just it, it ends up just tying you it, – it ends up being a repackaging of ad hominem um, arguments. I mean, I, don't, I hesitate to say attacks because ad hominem just means like about the person, and in and in this case, it really it, it really allow it's it's allowed people to make arguments strictly about the de- the identity of the arguers and the counter arguers that uh, com- can completely avoid the substance um, of what anybody is saying, which is which is a sure way to lead to just animosity, no actual solutions, and from a uh, partisan political point of view, absolutely disastrous um for uh creating political coalitions for example i I have a a personal experience uh engaging this subject um at the much earlier education level uh in middle school where my my um my son was experienced was coming home and bringing this language of white privilege home with him and um and he at the time he's 14 now so he was 12. so he's a 12 year old boy um, prepubescent and he's hearing at school about how he has white privilege and uh and starting to get things framed in terms of identity uh across several other dimensions and there's a lot of issues around uh, you know gender identity and gender fluidity happening in middle schools at least um at least he's he's experienced it where we live in Austin, and so we certainly you know maybe this is not happening in rural Iowa, but um, and and I noticed two things. First was I noticed that him and his his buddies had an a natural reactionary response to this, a kind of no go screw yourself response. So it, it, so w- if this was a good intentioned attempt to try to. Uh, Expose them to a tolerance view or something. Um, it wasn't really working, if right. it, you know. And then, but at the same time, it was also it's not good tolerance. It's not that's not tolerance. That's the opposite of tolerance. And so I actually had um, I had uh, breakfast with 
a, a senior member of the, the staff of the school um, to try to understand what was going on here and what was the thinking behind the way some of these issues were being framed, especially for kids as young as my son. And, and I said something that I thought was somewhat obvious and innocuous. I said, well, you know, there's a different way to think about these issues. So one is to say, well, we all have women's rights and men's rights and gay rights and black rights and Hispanic rights and immigrant rights and native rights. Another is to say we all have individual human rights and that our rights have, and, and our human dignity is a universally shared principle. And to my kind of shock and horror, this person responded, and they were very, they were are an honest person. They're clearly like a good, caring person. They care about the kids. They, their response, though, was, you know, that's a really interesting way to think about it. It's like, so you're a 25 year educator and an administrator, and you've never really been able to conceive of the basic premise of the Declaration of Independence. Yeah. How did we get here? Because, you know, this idea of the Overton window, like that, or, or maybe that's not the right concept, but the, whatever path this person has taken, and they've taken it in good faith on behalf of trying to make the world a better place, has actually blinded them to the most basic feeling like principles of like the Western civilization that's created what we, what we have today. It's yeah. totally gotten lost. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> and like I, the implications go so much further than college campuses. I mean, we see, I think we see what, I mean, talk about to sort of wrap out our conversation. I mean, so, you know, your, the book, the work you do, the experience you have lays out this college campus experience, but it's moving out of college campuses. It's moving into public discourse it's into journalism in the media. It's into human resource departments. So like paint, tell me about like what this work you've done, what it implies for where we're heading as a society. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, yeah, it, it, it's been interesting because uh, both, both Height and I have had the experience of um, you know, uh, people who run nonprofit organizations or for-profit corporations saying that they're, uh, hiring this new generation of students and finding that um, conflicts that were once simply interpersonal um, uh, tensions, you know, or or, or interpersonal conflicts, um, have become issues for the human resources department, um, and even things that um, uh, that would have been considered trivial before, and that it's actually paralyzing some organizations. And of course, they don't want to come out and say that they're really frustrated with their own hires, um, and this illustrate something that we I've been saying for a while. Uh, there was this kind of folk wisdom that, uh, you know, let's say you have students who don't believe in freedom of speech. They think freedom of speech is the tool of the oppressor, which is, of course, I can explain why that's nonsense. But um, uh, what, what's going to happen when these, these guys hit the real world? And I'm like, well, my concern is they're going to change it. They're going to become judges. They're going to become politicians. They're going to become professors. And they're going to popularize some of these ideas. And the world will change with it. Um, and I think that in the short term, uh, you know, my prediction is that uh, some of the stuff might actually kill some major companies. That being said, with the, with the coronavirus, maybe, you know, all of that is moot because that will be the major moving factor. 
manufacturer of the, of the next year of Roe, we know. But I do think that, and I'm particularly afraid of some of this, um, some of the things we're seeing on campus hitting politics and hitting uh, legal interpretation. Because, and, and I think it's worth pausing on this because I, I, I say this uh, at every single speech now because it's such basic education about free speech that I shouldn't have to do, but I do. Free speech only exists to protect minority rights in a democracy, period. What do I mean by that? Um, that, and this is addressing the argument that, that essentially free speech is the tool of the oppressor, um, which I see, unfortunately, uh, very commonly on campus. Um, that if you have, first of all, you know, p- people talk about, well, free speech empowers plutocrats and, and, and the, uh, rich people and the powerful. And it's like, no, actually, rich people and powerful people are empowered by the fact that they're rich and powerful. <laughs> that has been the case. Every society in human history, indeed, Henry democracy. VIII. Henry yeah. VIII really had a free speech power that was backing <laughs> his um, yeah. his reign. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> uh, you know, and actually, the part of the story of democracy are kings going to the merchant class to be like, "Can we get a loan?" You know, and them saying, "Well, we have to have some say in government." You know, so they're they're going to do fine, um, and except in in societies where they're lined up and shot, but that's its own problem. Um, and when it comes to a democracy. Uh, the fifty-one percent, the majority, you know, like what might be thought of as like the uh, the uh, oppressor class, the the bullies, um, win. If you got fifty fifty uh, percent plus a feather, you're you're you you are essentially the Rousseauian general will. You can do what you want, and that was where the founding fathers were thinking about keeping it. James Madison wasn't persuaded that we needed a First Amendment, but then he thought about the fact that, wait a second, is this really going to be going back and forth between I censor you, you censor me, blah, 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 um, uh, depending on who's who's on top? And that's where the first the, the the First Amendment and the Bill of Rights came from. Is like, what are the rights of the minorities during the during the tyranny of the majority? And and first uh, front and central was the problems of of uh, was the First Amendment was the promises of, of free speech, free press, freedom to uh, petition your government, freedom of religion, and freedom from state imposed religion. Um, really brilliant, really uh, really powerful idea. But it only exists to protect minorities. And one of the things that other people have been kind of afraid to say on campus because it sounds too partisan, um, but it's just a fact, is that for decades since universities tilt so overwhelmingly to the left, both in administrators and, and, and professors, it leads to this perception that the minority students are, are going to the administration demanding, um, in some cases, actually some, some minority students in my experience have been absolutely fabulous on free speech. They really get it. But in other cases, they're saying, you know, we need to punish this publication. We need to kick these students off. And for decades, they get the answer that, oh, I can't because the mean First Amendment makes me protect these rights. Without us actually re-establishing uh, what the power dynamics are in universities. So, for example, if you're in a power in a position powerful enough that you can go to the administrator and ask them to exert their power over um, an, another group on campus, you're not powerless. You're actually quite powerful. Um, and but the perception becomes that the First Amendment is protecting you from achieving your your your, your beautiful place. In that circumstance, frankly, the, the dissenters tend to be you know that's one of the reasons why conservatives get in trouble more often than liberals on campus. It's also why liberals, when they step out of line, which actually is more common than you'd think, uh, or don't 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 play by the rule book, also get in trouble. But this 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 lack of viewpoint diversity dynamic actually does poison this to a degree, and it's leading to a generation of students who are who are, almost take for granted that free speech, First Amendment 
that stuff is bad. And the, and the long-term uh, potential of that, that kind of corrosive thinking is if it gets into the law, uh, not only is it devastating to the state, the state of our democracy, um, it also will end up working out to the, uh, to the detriment, wildly to the detriment of minorities in, in, in the larger country. Well, I think, you know, you had mentioned earlier sort of in passing this idea of a Maoist struggle session, which <laughs> yeah. for people that um, don't know what that means, under the Cultural Revolution during Mao's communist reign over China, uh, they, as part of, you know, you know, they collectivized farming and all these other industries, and it caused um, it caused a collapse in their society and their economy because nobody wants to... Nobody, nobody washes rental cars. Why do they? Why not? Why don't they wash rental cars? Because you don't really work as hard for somebody else the way you do for yourself. Uh, and so that's what happens when you're farming for other people and not getting to keep the proceeds of your work. But they, he, um, they decided we need to remake the mentality of the people. And and one of the ways that they did that would literally putting people who spoke out against the regime often in the most minor ways into public shaming stoning sessions often wearing dunce caps and they were called struggle sessions where they would admit how wrong they were and how sorry they were for how dare they were to do such a thing and, and oftentimes they were just killed so it was really mostly about showing everybody else don't you dare step out of line unfortunately that is a description of twitter today right <laughs> The, uh, the the amount of struggle sessions that seem to go on in the public discourse now it feels like it's accelerating and I it does seem like that's part of this um all of these problems that you've laid out sort of uh, starting to come home to roost on the wider culture like how how are we supposed to be an innovative society when we're increasingly afraid to uh, think. Um, the wrong thoughts, whatever that might mean. Yeah, and it's something that's um, that is so strong and so beautiful in, in First Amendment law. And actually, one of the big champions of what I call deep pluralism um, is the great uh, black activist uh, and Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Um, and you can see throughout the the opinions that he wrote alongside um, uh, Justice Brennan that uh, there, there's this idea of human diversity, including um, the, both uh, the, the, the polite and the not at all polite, um, the rarefied and the vulgar. Uh, and it's this understanding of, you know, like well, when you read Supreme Court cases, they, they lay out the possibility that, yeah, you know, this parent doesn't want their kid to see indecent material. This other parent might want to take their kid to an R-rated movie, which is, you know, kind of un 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 unthinkable now. Uh, but at the same time, you know, that was the kind of human diversity they were talking about. There's a, there's a great line from Cohen v. California, um, which is quite literally true, is one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric, um, which kind of uh, conveys this really, conveys this really well. But what you see, or what you're seeing, you know, on campus at its at its worst for these uh, political moments is a kind of um, uh, uh, conformity. The, I, I talk about both campuses sometimes, but particularly Twitter being a conformity engine that we didn't really expect. That essentially it's kind of like uh, since we value and enjoy the idea of calling people out so much it we're going to ex obsessively do this to the point at which it becomes uh th this very purified sort of realm of, of 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 acceptable speech completely in contrast to the kind of 
um, diversity of opinion and diversity of temperament and diversity of, of personal experience that everyone from, you know, James Madison to Thurgood Marshall to more recent thinkers, uh, Cass Sunstein, you know, said this, that, that we're dependent on that diversity for our creativity, our vibrance, and, and our tolerance of people who, who, who might be, you know, ruder than you, for goodness sakes. And unfortunately, I think there's a very homogenizing, at least politically homogenizing effect that we're having at the top of, uh, of some campuses. We're seeing that actually those echo chambers get even thicker on, on Twitter. And I think it's part of the reason why uh, our polarization, unfortunately, I think is just on track to get nastier. Now, this is not to say that this is this is entirely on the on the left. That's that that's of course nonsense. I say all the time that due to other factors, polarization would have increased um, even if colleges weren't in the picture. Um, I believe that that would that happen in part due to uh, ability to move to communities that better reflect our point of view, which we've done in massive numbers. People moving to San Francisco or the countryside, depending on what they want. Um, but also to create uh, digital um, uh, uh, groups that uh, repeat back to you everything that you learned on MSNBC or Fox News, you know, all day long. So this would would have been getting worse even without the existence of higher education, is my opinion. However, what should be our best engine for getting people to be more reflective, more open to the possibility they might be wrong, more excited, not just not just willing, but excited to talk to people that they, they, they disagree with, uh, to figure out what the world really looks like outside their doors. The institution that should be doing that is higher education. So this is the thing that, that I like to point out is higher education could be a great depolarizing institution. But instead, I think it's actually training people to be to put to, to put on the thickest war hat they can find and find the people who agree with them and move to the places of the highest level of agreement, um, and is making is is actually uh, possibly making this the, this polarized battle. It's already very, you know, polarized on the right uh, around Trump um, into something that could really be disastrous. I'm tempted to say thanks for having this conversation, but, but let, I'm going to ask for I'm going to ask instead for us to end because endings matter so much. Yes. On where where do you think is the brightest uh, sign of of light at the end of the, this dark tunnel that we're clearly in on a lot of these issues? You know, where do you have signs for optimism? Obviously, you're running an organization, you're leading an organization that, you know, any leader needs an optimistic vision to get up in the morning in the face of all the challenges Absolutely. that we face. You know, well, what gets you up in the morning saying, this is a fight worth having, or the, or this, you know, there's a, there's a there's a curve that can bend in the right direction or whatever analogy you want to use. What's, let's end on a positive note. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think I'm a you know I'm temperamentally an optimist, um, but you know I do think that things are going to get worse before they get better, at least on the short term. Oh, I'm not very optimistic about the next five years. However, the reason why I'm optimistic about freedom of speech is for a very simple reason: freedom of speech works really well. It's better at producing good ideas. It's better at producing creativity. It's better at producing innovation. It's better at creating a more tolerant society. It's better at creating peace. Believe it or not. Um, that and people have to be reminded of this. These people who argue that that uh, speech is violence on campus need to understand 
that speech is the alternative to violence. That, that, that's one of the ideas in having a free and open society is that we will solve things partially with barbed arguments, but not with guns and guns and steel, for goodness sakes. Um, so free speech is actually the idea, taking on the idea that you have to tolerate disagreement without responding to violence, um, that we now settle things for freedom of speech, even though it may be nasty sometimes, is one of the greatest innovations for peace ever invented. So I do think that it works so well, and people do end up uh, end up being so contemptuous, at least at a certain point, of the forces that are telling them to conform. That I do have long term hope for it. Uh, I do think that, for example, there needs to be some competition when it comes to how we uh, institutions on how we raise kids, and also for that matter, higher education. You know, things that are just completely outside of the box ways of doing uh, doing education that might be uh, leaner, cheaper, more rigorous. You know, fewer administrators. Um, so, but ultimately, you know, I I, I peg my hope on the uh, what I call the eternally radical idea, an idea that uh, even though people talk about it being an ideal that's aspired to in every civilization, I prefer to emphasize the fact that people have tried to shut down free speech at every moment in human history, um, and they usually win. And it's only been a relatively small window where we've fought them back. And those periods, when you look back at them, are often called. Of, of comparative tolerance or real tolerance are often called what we call our golden ages because poetry, art, uh, thought, math, philosophy all, all, all explode. And I, so I do think that free speech can protect itself. It can justify itself if allowed to. On that positive note, I want to thank you for having this conversation with me, Greg. It, it's been, um, it's been a fantastic journey and you and John have done an amazing service with both the article and the book and what you're doing with fire is so incredibly important. And I really recommend anyone that's listening to check out fire and support the organization because it's, if we want college campuses to serve the role that John, that, that Greg has um, so eloquently laid out, you know, we, we need to, we need to demand it of them. And that's what fire is there to do. So thank you so much. Real pleasure talking to you. Um, you know, uh, I would love to sit down again. Thanks for listening to the Emergent Order podcast. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. If you're interested in being a guest, shoot us an email at podcast at emergentorder.com. Our producer is Jesse Bennett. Thanks again and speak to you next time.